Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Now, if you would, please take out your Bibles and turn in them in the New Testament to the Gospel of Mark and chapter number 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you can grab that Bible and turn in the back portion of it to page 9, and you would be at Mark chapter 12. Now, it was in 1965, when I was a lad of 14, that a pop tune was released. It was penned by a very accomplished duo of songwriters called Hal David and Burt Bacharach. The song was performed by Jackie DeShannon. The title of the song is What the World Needs Now. It was a song that's been recorded by many other people, including Luther Vandross. It's been in many movie soundtracks over the years. But here's the way the words of that song go. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. That's the only thing that there's just too little of. Not for some, but for everyone. Now, it's true that what the world needs now is love, but that's not the only thing that there's just too little of. The world also needs truth. And so we could flip those words around to say this, what the world needs now is truth, straight truth. Not just for some, but for everyone. We need truth, straight truth in the business arena. We need to see the business arena infected with honesty and integrity. Instead, what we see far too much of is double dealing and underhandedness and misrepresentation and deception in the business arena. Truth, straight truth, is what we need desperately in the political arena. Our politicians today, you look at them and they are artisans when it comes to slanting the truth and evading the truth. And they're so accomplished at promising one thing and then delivering the opposite. Truth, straight truth, is something we need in the spiritual arena of life. Why? Because people's spiritual livelihoods, their destinies are on the line. And Satan is called in the Bible the father of lies. He will lie seeking to derail and damage people, ultimately to lead people to spiritual catastrophe and spiritual destruction. Truth, straight truth, is what we need today. And not for some, but for everyone. Now, we have been involved in a very short series of messages I have entitled Tricks and Truth, Life Lessons from the Savior. And these messages come out of Mark chapter 12. And what we see in this chapter is that religious leaders have tossed the truth aside. And they are out to trick. They are out to trap Jesus. They're out to discredit him. They ultimately want to see him arrested and eliminated. And this chapter 
is one of the great reversals that we can ever see. It takes, Jesus takes the religious leaders to truth school in this chapter over and over again. And if this was a movie, we would all be cheering as we watch Jesus respond to their tricks and their traps with truth. Now, the first trick, the first trap we looked at in chapter 12, in essence, from verses 12 to 17. The second trick, the second trap that they bring is found in verses 18 to 27. And what I would like to do this morning is read from verses 18 to 27, and I invite you to follow along in your Bible as I'm reading. Verse 18 says, Some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children, and the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead but of the living, you are greatly mistaken. Now, what we're going to do today is we're first going to look at the trick or the trap that they bring to Jesus, but then the second thing we're going to look at is the truth that Jesus responds to this trick with, and we're going to see that it is a two-pronged truth. Now, last time we were looking at this, in the previous verses, verses 12 to 17, we saw that the Pharisees, if you'll notice that in verse 13, and the Herodians came to Jesus to try to trick him. And the Pharisees and the Herodians failed. Now today, we have the Sadducees who step forward to seek to humiliate and to discredit Jesus. And if you want to learn something about the Sadducees, you can notice verse 18 where it says, some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection. By the way, do you know where the Sadducees got their name? They were a group of people who believed that there is no resurrection. They believed that when you die, there is nothing. There is no hope for a future life. There is nothing there for you, nothing there for your loved ones. They just said, the Sadducees said, there is no future hope at all. You die and it's just, that's the end. And that is very 
sad, you see. Just checking to see whether you are awake today. The Sadducees, in actuality, were rich aristocrats. All the high priest's families were among the Sadducees. The leading lay families of Israel were among the Sadducees. They were the rich aristocrats, and they were the rationalists. We have rationalists today. The Sadducees said, ah, there's no such thing as resurrection. There's no angels. There's no spirit world. In Acts chapter 23, it tells us those things. There is no immortal soul. There is no heaven. There is no hell. None of those things exist. All that we have is what we see. Thus believed the Sadducees. Another thing about the Sadducees is that they only accepted what we call the Pentateuch. In the Old Testament time, it was called the Book of Moses. It's the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all authored by Moses. And they said, that's all that we accept. We don't accept anything else as Scripture but the Book of Moses, those first five books of the Old Testament as we know them. And here's what the Sadducees would do, is they would look down their nose at anyone who was naive enough to believe in things like resurrection and a spirit world and an immortal soul, heaven and hell. How could you be so stupid to believe in those kinds of things? That were the Sadducees. That's what they believed. And so we see them coming to Jesus, and they're out to stump Jesus. And, and you know, they're coming to him with this air of cockiness, They're asking a question that they think is just an unanswerable question. And we have people who do the same thing today. They'll say to us, well, where did Adam get his navel? Uh, Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Uh, Where did Cain get his wife? And they're asking those questions in a cocky way like there's no answer to those things. And there are answers to those questions. Where did Adam get his navel? He didn't have one. He was born without one because he never went through childbirth. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? The chicken. Where did Cain get his wife? He married his sister. And the human race at that point was so pure that there were no genetic consequences for marrying his sister. But it's that kind of an attitude, you see, that they bring to Jesus when they ask this question. If you look at verse 19, we see the question. Teacher... Moses wrote for us, remember, we only accept the book of Moses, only those first five books. But in Moses, he wrote this, that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and there's no children there, this man's brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. The idea was it's very important that day to continue the family line on. And so you have someone die, his wife doesn't have kids, a brother should step forward to marry her so that they could continue the family line. And so here comes a little story, you know. All right, now we're really going to stump them on this one. All right, here it comes, Jesus. Here's the deal. There are seven brothers, and the first one took a wife and died. And the second one married her and died. 
And the third one married her and died. And the fourth one and the fifth one and the sixth one and the seventh one married her and died. And I'm thinking, what was that woman's cooking like? I mean, something's fishy here, right? All seven marry and they all die. And then at the end of verse 22, and last of all, the woman died also. All right, here comes the big tricky question. In the resurrection, when they rise again, (laughs) we really don't believe that they do, but this is part of the trick of the question, you see. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. All seven had a legitimate claim to her as their wife. Now, you have to understand, they're smirking to themselves or trying to control themselves when they're asking this question. They don't believe in the resurrection anyway, but this was a trick question that they'd come up with that no one could answer. And they had stumped the Pharisees and the scribes who did believe in resurrection by asking this question. They would ask this and they'd go, we don't know the answer. So the Sadducees are thinking, we got them now. We got them. We're going to watch him squirm trying to come up with the answer to this, even though it's stupid because it's talking about the resurrection. It's just a trick question. We're going to capture him. He's not going to know what's going on, and the people aren't going to listen to him after they watch him squirm when we give him this question. And then Jesus delivers back. As this trick comes at him, he delivers back truth, and we see that in verse 24. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken? The NIV says, is this not the reason you are in error? The word in the original is the verb planao, P-L-A-N-A-O. It's a word that means to be wrong, to be deceived, to be deluded, to be way off course. Now, you have to appreciate this kind of response coming from Jesus because the Sadducees viewed themselves as the most enlightened group of all. And really what he's saying to them is you are doubly ignorant. Not only are you not the most enlightened group of all, but when you come down to your facts, you're wrong. You're deluded. You're just way off course. And he says to them, you do not understand the scripture, and you do not understand the power of God. You mock at the possibility of resurrection. You don't understand the power of God and what God can do. Now, I have to admit to you, if we had the opportunity and we could have been viewing this scene, here's right when I would want to freeze frame it and look at the faces of the Sadducees. See, they were cocky. We have an answer that no one can give an answer to, and Jesus comes right back at them, the ones who thought themselves to be so enlightened, and he says, you are deceived, you are deluded, you are really doubly ignorant about this. You don't understand the Scripture. You don't understand the power of God. I just would have loved to have seen their faces at that moment. By the way, you know, we have people like the Sadducees today, people who want to view themselves as the enlightened ones. And they're very quick to claim, God, there is no God. Life beyond the grave, there's nothing beyond the grave. This life is all that there is. And so you need to just live it to the full. There's nothing else out there. 
And then, you know, you step forward and say, well, wait a minute, no, I'm not sure I believe. Oh, you're stupid for believing that. The, you, you can't believe that there's a God. How can you believe there's a God? You can't see God. How do you believe there's something beyond the grave? There's nothing there. This life is it. You're just stupid to believe in those things. Well, Jesus takes on people just like that. Notice what he says in verse 25. He says there, when they rise from the dead. Notice what Jesus was saying to the Sadducees who said there is no such thing as resurrection. There's nothing beyond the grave. You die, it's all over. He's saying, look, when they rise, there will be resurrection. There will be resurrection. When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. There is going to be a resurrection, but life in heaven will be different. Human beings will be like angels. There will be no marriage there. Now, I want to make a couple of observations about what Jesus shares here, this truth that he gives us. And the first one is simply this, that in the eternal state, there will be no death. Because there's no death, there's no need of marriage. You see, we need to have marriage where there's death now because we have the necessity of reproduction and procreation. We need to continue the race. People weren't marrying and weren't reproducing. The race would all be gone in one generation. But in heaven, that's all unessential. There is no death, thus there's no need of marriage. Now, at the same time, and I want to be completely transparent, I want, I want to make another thought about all of this. Many of us who are married really enjoy sex. It's one of the pleasures of life. We enjoy the intimacy that it brings. We enjoy the feelings that it brings. We enjoy the pleasure of it. And to be honest, most of us wish that pleasure would last longer. But here's what I want you to know. When you think about this, well, there's no marriage in heaven, so there's a whole bunch of pleasure that I'll never know again. Remember what Paul says in Philippians 1.23. He says, when we go to heaven, in heaven it will be, here's his description, very much better than here. Not just better, not just much better, but very much better. And so if you're thinking and lamenting, well, that means that all pleasure part of my life, it'll be gone forever. Listen, we need to trust God and his plans. We need to trust him that the joys of life here, listen, are just a foretaste of what is to come. And the bliss and the pleasure and the excitement of heaven is going to outstrip and overshadow the pleasure and excitement that we have now on earth. See, God's power is more than capable of bringing that back, bringing that about. Now, Jesus says something else in verse 24 that I think is very important. He says, you do not understand the scriptures. That's your problem, he says. You do not understand the scriptures. 
And he elaborates on that in verses 26 and 27. He says, regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you Sadducees not read in the book of Moses? Ouch. You know, the proof text Jesus is going to bring comes right out of the book of Moses. Have you not read in the passage about the burning bush how God spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Moses lived three centuries after Jacob. And of course, it would have been much longer than that after Isaac and Abraham. So we have God talking to Moses three centuries after Jacob had left the planet. And God says to Moses three centuries and more later, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this teaches us an important truth, and that is that the inspiration of the Word of God extends to the tense of the verbs. Jesus believed that. This book that we have is fully and completely inspired down to the tense of the verbs. Now, what was Jesus trying to communicate to them? When God said, I am, not was, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's basically saying this to them. Listen, God cannot be God to those who no longer exist. If you die, you just go away. If you cease to be and you're just mere dust, God would not still be your God. When God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he was communicating, Jesus says, that he had a present relationship with each one of them. They may be dead to the physical world, but they are alive before God in the invisible world. And we need to remember that. You see, when you have a personal relationship with the living God, when you die... It alters your relationship with people. When you die, it alters your relationship with the world. But it doesn't alter your relationship with God. See, my father died in 1993. My father had a personal relationship with the living God. And when he died in 1993, his death altered his relationship with people. We didn't see him anymore. Didn't have the opportunity to go visit him or send him a card or make a phone call on Father's Day. When my dad died in 1993, it altered his relationship with the world. You weren't going to see him anymore at Walmart. You weren't going to see him at an athletic event. You wouldn't see him on the golf course. He wasn't paying his utility bills anymore. See, when you have a personal relationship with the living God, death will alter your relationship with people, and it will alter your relationship with the world, but it does not alter your relationship with God. 
My father doesn't live here amongst us anymore, but he is still in relationship with the living God, living in the spiritual realm. Keep your finger here in Mark chapter 12 and turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a number of books to the right in your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. And I want to read a number of verses from this chapter. And in this chapter, Paul gives a a word picture to our body, our physical body. He calls our physical body an earth tent. You know, when you look at me, you see my physical body, but this isn't really me. The real Bruce lives inside of this thing that Paul calls an earth tent. And there'll be a time in which this earth tent will fall over, but the real person will still exist. And if you look at chapter 5, verse 1, Paul writes, he says, we know that if the earth tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. See, we're going to go to heaven, and that eternity, there will be a permanent house that we live in, a permanent tent, if you would. He says, for indeed, in this earth tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. How do we know we're going to get to heaven? Well, verse 5, now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge, as a down payment, as earnest money, that one day I'm going to have a permanent home permanent tent in eternity. The Holy Spirit is the down payment guaranteeing that that will happen. And then look at verse 6. He says, therefore, in light of all that, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the earth tent, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We can't see it and touch it, but we believe that God says it's there, and so we believe it. Verse 8, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the earth tent and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether we are at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. See, there will be resurrection. I want you to go back to the the Gospel of Mark in chapter 12, and look again at verse 27. He's wrapping up all of his thoughts here as he talks to the Sadducees, and he says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And then he says this to them, you are greatly mistaken. I think the NIV says, you are badly mistaken. The New Living Translation says, you made a serious error. Now think about the cockiness that they came to Jesus with. And now Jesus is saying to them, you're not just mistaken, you're badly mistaken. You are way off in the weeds over here. Why does he say that to them? Well, the problem with being way off and badly mistaken is that it has far-reaching implications. 
it has eternal ramifications to be greatly mistaken. Now that's the trick, and we've looked at the truth. Let's draw some lessons from this. What are the truth lessons that God has for us today? What are the life lessons? What does he want us to understand from this? Well, here's the first one. The first one is, it is foolish to ignore what Scripture says. See, it's foolish to be running around out there and say, well, I can't see it, I can't touch it, therefore it can't be. And people we know are running around doing that, maybe even some of you. And they'll, they'll ridicule us. They'll say, I can't believe you believe in heaven and hell. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. I can't see it. I can't touch it. can't go visit there. It doesn't exist. It's stupid for you to believe. They will often say that you, you believe in a spiritual dimension. How, how would you believe in a spiritual dimension? This world's all there is. It's just what we see. Or how can you possibly believe that there is future judgment that people are going to have to face. That is the silliest thing I ever heard. Can you, can you take me to some place that shows me this stuff? No, that's stupid. Or how about this one? You believe there's only one way to heaven? Now that is dumb. Well, we all know if there is such a thing as heaven, there's multiple ways that you can get there. How can you be so arrogant? Oh, wow, so arrogant to believe there's only one way to heaven. And see, people who run around that way and they're thinking, if I can't see it, I can't touch it, it can't be, they're making a great mistake And the reason why is this. God knows things we don't know. And what he knows that we need to know, he put in the Bible, the Scriptures. You see, here's what God did, basically. We have this world that we cannot really see a whole dimension that exists. And what God does is he takes the curtain and he pulls it back. That's why we call it revelation. He is taking the curtain and pulling it back, saying here's the things you need to see and the things that you need to know. And I would say this, that when someone rejects the Scriptures, you know what they're really doing to themselves? They are locking themselves into a very narrow band of understanding. They are bound by what they can see and what they can touch and what they can verify by their senses. And you know the big problem with that? If that's your position, you become the boundary of your knowledge. If it's all just based on what you can see, touch, and verify by your senses, you yourself are the boundary of your knowledge. And that kind of a position, that narrow band of understanding, is woefully inadequate when it comes to knowledge about death and judgment and eternity. 
You see, we need someone to pull the curtain back for us. The scientific method of determining truth is highly valuable. It's a wonderful method, but it is a limited method. We need someone to pull the curtain back for us. And in this section of Mark chapter 12, Jesus gives some great answers. The problem is that many people often aren't asking the right questions. See, the question we really need to be asking are things like this. What is life really about? Where did I actually come from? Where am I going? Is there really an eternity? Is there, is there a heaven and is there a hell? Those are the kind of questions every human being ought to ask. And God's revelation, as we have it in the Bible, has the answers. Does anyone ever want to find themselves wearing the label one day, you are greatly mistaken? You are badly mistaken. See, those kinds of positions have far-reaching implications and ramifications because if we are greatly mistaken about what happens on the other side of death, that's going to affect us forever. And that's a long time. So the truth lessons, I believe, the life lessons that God has for us here, the first one is, is it is foolish to ignore what Scripture says. Second truth lesson he has for us is that future resurrection is a reality. It is a reality, men and women. Verse 25, Jesus said, when they rise... See, he's not saying, hey, when you die, you're just annihilated. It's just all over. It's all gone. It just ends right there. He doesn't say, when you die, we are reincarnated and we come back and we go and we come back and we go. We go in this little circle around and around and around. He's saying, listen, future resurrection is a reality. President Dwight Eisenhower once said this. He said, I'm interested in eternity. I'm going to spend the rest of my life there. And you ought to be interested in eternity because you're going to spend the rest of your life there. Solomon, who was the wisest man who ever lived apart from the person of Jesus Christ, who was the God-man on the planet, said this in Ecclesiastes 3.11. He says, God has set in humanity's heart Eternity. God has set eternity in our heart. What does it really mean? It means that we have this inner sense about us that there's more to life than we can see. There's just something deep inside of our being that tells us there's got to be something more than this. There's got to be something more. In my case, to being born in Montgomery, Alabama, and then spending whatever amount of years I have on this planet, and then I die. There's something inside of us that says, there's got to be more than that. 
that you're not just born and then you die and then there's just nothing. Deep in our soul, we know there's got to be more. There's got to be eternity out there. Future resurrection, men and women, is a reality. Now, I want to read to you some verses from John chapter 5. You can turn in your Bible if you want, but I'm going to put them on the screen this morning because I want you to just look at them. I want you to study them for a moment. These are words that Jesus himself spoke. He says in John 5, 25, truly, truly, I say to you. That was their way of saying, listen, you can be assured 100% that what I'm now going to share with you is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. You can be assured that's going to happen. And then in verse 28 of John 5, Jesus says this, Do not marvel at this. Don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. An hour is coming in which all who are in tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Future resurrection is a reality. And then he goes on to add in verse 29, all who are going to come forth, and he says, some to a resurrection of life and some to a resurrection of judgment. What's the difference? All are going to hear his voice. All will have a future resurrection, some to a resurrection of life and some to a resurrection of judgment. And what Jesus goes on to say, he says this multiple times, the pivot point is a person's response to the person of Jesus Christ. That's what makes the difference about whether it's a resurrection of life or resurrection of judgment. It all comes and pivots around your response to the person of Jesus Christ. In verse 24 of John 5, Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you can count on the fact that what I'm now going to say is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. He says, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me, Someone who comes to grip with the fact that I am the one who came to this planet to rescue people from sin and judgment. I am on the way to the cross to pay your penalty forever, to die in your place. If you, what does he go on to say, believes him who sent me, trusts in the fact that Jesus is the one I'm counting on. I'm resting in that, not what I can do, but what Jesus Christ did. He who believes him who sent me, what does it say? Has eternal life and does not come into judgment. All who are in the tombs are going to hear his voice. And all are going to come forth. Some to a resurrection of life and some to a resurrection of judgment. And by the way, the resurrection of life is going to be amazing 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 tells us that eye 
has not seen and ear has not heard. It has not even entered into the imagination and the heart of man all that God has prepared in eternity. We don't have a clue. Well, we have some clues. But we have no clue of the incredible awesomeness of a resurrection to life. What the world needs now is truth, straight truth. Not just for some, but for everyone. And eternity pivots around the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this book, this revelation that it gives us. We thank you, Father, that Jesus tells it like it is. And it is very foolish for us to ignore what Scripture says. And we need to all remember that future resurrection is a reality for every person who's ever taken a breath. Father, if there's any who listen to my voice right now who've never yet looked at the person of Christ and said, I want to believe in him, I want to trust in him, I want to rest in him, I want a resurrection of life, not of judgment. I pray that they would do that very thing right at this very moment. They don't have to move around, they don't have to do anything other than their heart to the heart of God, saying, I want to count on the person of Jesus Christ to not only bring me forgiveness on this planet now, but to give me a resurrection of life that eye has not seen, ear hasn't heard, it's never even entered into the heart of our imagination, all that God has prepared for us there. May all of us put our trust in the person of Jesus Christ and what he has done. And thank you for the promise of a resurrection of life to those who have. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.